2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 and verses 13 to 17. And the apostle writes, he says, Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. You would join me in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks and praise this morning, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the worship that you have allowed us to participate in together as a gathered body this morning. Lord, we thank you for song and for confession of faith and sin. Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord, as we lift them to you. So, Lord God, we do pray, Father, as a loving God who does hear our prayers, Lord, we pray, God, that you would meet with us this morning as we consider your word together. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon this church, Lord, that you would move in our hearts and our minds in such a way, Lord, to believe and to hear and to understand what you have inspired through the Apostle Paul. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that you would bless our worship this morning, Lord, that you would bless our time in your word and that you would bless our time as we make thanks for what Christ has done for us. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, our text this morning, um, I think I, I found out as I was working through it this week, I realized it kind of presents us with a bit of a dilemma, right? Because, and this is kind of obvious for all the New Testament churches, but for Thessalonians, just looking at this one particular text, the Thessalonians were obviously dealing with some issues, right? Now, again, you go read through the letters to the Corinthians, and you know they were dealing with issues, right? The Ephesians were, the churches in dispersion that Peter writes to. They're all dealing with their problems, but the Thessalonians, while also dealing with persecution, like most of the New Testament churches of the era, they were also dealing with some serious stress about one particular theological doctrine, And that's the doctrine of the end times. Now, for those of us today, this sounds kind of familiar, right? Especially if you're just even keeping your ear to the ground in most things evangelical worldwide-wise, right? Because we're all kind of a little obsessed with the end times. But they're stressed, right? They're stressed 
about the end. They're stressed and they're anxious because just from what we have read here in these few verses, they seem to have apparently been told that Jesus had either already returned and they were forgotten and left behind or something else or that he was about to return and they just weren't up to snuff, right? That they were going to miss out on his return. Like that, that sounds kind of familiar, right? Again, these are things that we hear, especially in more revivalistic areas. Calvin writes here, he says that there is a difference, and we know this. There is a difference between being ready for Christ and being anxious. He says this, he says, While the Lord Jesus would have us to be constantly waiting for him in such a way as to not limit him to a certain time, Paul does bid the churches to feel assured of Christ's return so that they may not be wearied out with the irksomeness of his delay. So his point being, yes, we are to always be ready for the return of Christ. Jesus himself even tells us so. But we are also not to be so obsessed with it that we are constantly looking for the rapture or the tribulation around the corner. We're not looking for the boogeyman around the corner. And we're not to be so obsessed with it that we either lose faith... Or it cripples our faith and it cripples our work that we have been called to do in the kingdom of God. And so we come to a text like this, especially with just Advent being a couple of weeks down the road where the first Sunday of Advent, we usually always celebrate and look forward to the second Advent of Christ. What do we make of texts like this, right? What do we do with this? How do we read texts such as this? Well, in all things biblical, I think, again, we need to take a moment. We need to really kind of understand The context, right? I know that word kind of gets annoying coming from my mouth, but I can't help it, right? We have to understand the context of what's going on in the background here. Because really, once we have a good understanding of what what is going on in Thessalonica, how to deal with other texts similar to this really, I think, becomes very simple. So let me begin by giving you, I'm going to use an old PI term, right? Because I like to read those old private investigator novels sometimes. Let me give you the skinny as to what's going on in Thessalonica. Okay, So here's the issue. They are worried about the end times, but I think the Thessalonians at their core, or the Thessalonians, excuse me, at their core, I think they lack confidence in God. Because the questions that, could, that we could bring out as to Paul's, what Paul is addressing here, the questions from them that we could possibly make up here is, is something like this. God is addressing issues like, can God be trusted? Does God even keep his promises? And of course, with this text in mind, specifically, does God keep his promises of the return of Christ? And then even more than that, are God's promises even trustworthy? And so to answer these questions, let's kind of approach this, since I used a PI term, let's approach this kind of like an investigation, right? Like, a, like those investigation documentaries that you, that you watch online, right? They always present to you the issue, and then they present to you the solution, right? So this is really what Paul does in this text. He presents to us in the first five verses the problem, and then in the last five verses, he presents the outcome, the solution. So considering the problem here in verses 1 to 5, let's ask again, what's going on here? Well, 2 Thessalonians, just to give you some understanding of the letter, it was only written a few months after 1 Thessalonians. And that wasn't usually the case that Paul wrote multiple letters. It usually took a little bit longer of time than that. But Paul ended up, now he probably wrote this from Corinth, so he's not that far from Thessalonica when he gets a report that followed up 1 Thessalonians. But he received further information, and so one of the dominant themes of 1 Thessalonians is the return of Christ. So by the time of penning both of these letters, Paul had yet to revisit 
Thessalonica. Because if you go read in Acts 17, Paul and Silas are driven out by a mob, right? So obviously, they're not really all that eager to get back and have to face that, right? They don't want to deal with the violence. But that being said, Paul did ended up ended up doing that at some point anyway. But he had received some information that some teachers, right? I'm going to put that in bold air quotes for those who are only listening and not able to be with us this morning. There were some teachers, quote-unquote, either from the Judaizer party, but honestly with some of this teaching, most likely from one of the many random Gnostic groups that were out there that had, as was the case in most of these churches, tried to infiltrate the church. And so these teachers were going around, and they were telling these churches, they were saying, look, Christ has already come back. He's already come back, and again, you've missed it. Right? Or, and this is very Gnostic, or he's already come back, and so you were already spiritually perfected. So the reason I'm bringing up both is this. The idea of missing Christ's return is really what influences the rest of our text this morning. But the idea of being spiritually perfected, Paul addresses in our text in 2 Thessalonians next week. So keep that in the background of your mind as we go through this morning and the rest of the week. But for this week, we see again, they thought that Christ had already returned. And so because they thought he returned, they, they thought that he had just left them behind, right? He had forgotten them. And so they had grown miserable. They had grown hopeless. In 1 Thessalonians, one of the big issues there is that they were worried about the return and the people that had died. Are they going to miss out on the return of Christ? And Paul says no. And so this church, they're being persecuted. They're, they're frightened. They're shaken by this notion that Jesus had just come back and he said, I don't really want them. I'm going to leave them behind. And so Paul begins here in verses 1 to 5 to address this. And in verse 2, well, verses 1 and 2, he starts to address this directly. He says again, he says, now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So here he's laying out the context. I know you're freaking out about it. So concerning the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word. Or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This day of the Lord meaning the return of Christ. And so here again we read specifically, right? Some are telling the Thessalonians, and obviously many were now starting to buy into it, that Jesus had already come back. And so Paul tells them in verse 2, he says, look, don't be shaken in mind. Don't be alarmed. Don't freak out. Calm down. It'll be okay. Really interestingly, this word alarmed he uses here in verse 2 is the same word that is used by Jesus in Matthew and in Mark when he tells the disciples to not be alarmed at false messiahs or wars or rumors of wars that would precede his return. Don't be alarmed by these things. These things must happen. And so what Paul is doing here in this text is he's using the same sentiment. He's drawing upon the sentiment of the Lord because his concern is that the Thessalonians might not might become not only anxious over the rumors about the return of Christ, but he does not want them to become so hyper-focused upon it that it cripples them in their faith in Jesus and that it cripples them in doing the ministry that God has called them to. And so he tells them here, he says, again, don't be alarmed, don't freak out, whether by a spirit or by a spoken word, or, I like the phrasing of this, by a letter seeming to be from us. So it's pretty obvious at this point then that Paul knows that not only are there some teachers going around teaching this false doctrine, but also they're forging letters from the apostles. And so they're not only trying to undermine the proclamation of the gospel, but they're trying to forge 
apostolic authority. And so he even goes so far at the end of this letter in chapter 3, verse 17, he even writes the end of it in his own hand to say, look, I am actually writing this to you. Here are my letters. And so he writes here in verse 2, he says, look, don't be alarmed. Don't believe these forged letters. Don't believe that they, what they proclaim about the return of Christ because you're forgetting a few things, church. You're forgetting a few things about the return of Christ. And so he spends the rest of these five verses reminding them, here are the things you're forgetting. And the first one is found in verse 1. He said, you're forgetting that there is an intentional connection between Christ's return and our being raised and gathered with Christ. He says this again. Now, that word now, every time it comes up in Paul, you ought to just circle it and underline it and bold it, right? Because he's always saying, look, I've got something I'm about to tell you, right? I'm about to lay the snake on the table, right? And here it is. Here it is now. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. So Paul had already addressed this with them in 1 Thessalonians 4, telling them specifically in that passage that the dead in Christ are to be raised first when Christ returns. And then, after that, those believers who are still living will then join the resurrected dead with the Lord. And so while in both of these passages, both in 1 Thessalonians 4 and then ours today, Paul doesn't give us an actual timetable of Jesus' return. His primary concern, again, his focus is on encouraging this church in their present suffering and in their struggles and in their discouragements because they had become discouraged. They had become concerned because they had started to believe the lie that Jesus had returned and they were left behind. And so he says, no, 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 look, don't freak out. Don't stress. Don't believe those forged letters because you know how you know Jesus hasn't returned yet? Because the dead have not been raised. So don't freak out. Jesus hasn't returned. If you who are still alive have not been yet gathered to Christ, then he has not yet returned. And so second, he gives two more in verses 3 and 4. He says, you're also forgetting two more things. You're forgetting there is to be a rebellion and there is to be a revealing of the man of lawlessness. And so he says this in verses 3 through 5. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, right? Either through a written letter or a, or a spirit or a spoken word. Let no one deceive you. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, who is the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then he just ends with this rhetorical question, which the answer is obviously yes. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, right? I told you this. How are you forgetting this already? It's just been a couple of months. And so here in verse 3, he says, look, the day of the Lord has not yet begun because the world has not yet experienced this rebellion. Or some translations read this idea of a great falling away. Right? So this, what this is, is this is an intentional rejection of both God and his law. When the disciples asked Jesus about the signs of his return, he, he responded that false messiahs and false prophets would precede his return but so would a great persecution against the church. Now, I imagine at this point we're all looking down the highway of history and we're going, hang on a minute, I know what context we live in. This seems to be the case, right? We have a lot of churches that are extremely apostate at this point. They're no longer churches, right? There is a great falling away. We feel like there's a great persecution against the church. I mean, I'm even leading a monthly study called The Church in Babylon, right? Which talks about the idea of the church being in exile, right? 
So we're thinking about these things. But remember, don't be anxious about it. Don't freak out. Don't be quickly shaken. Because the great rebellion apparently has not yet happened. But even more so, the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction is to also be revealed. This is the one who opposes and exalts himself so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. And he proclaims himself to actually be God. And Paul will tell us in the rest of this big chunk of passage before the rest of our text this morning, he says that from this man of lawlessness will come accompanying false signs and wonders, which will deceive those who have intentionally rejected Christ. But there's a lot that surrounds us in our mind, right? Is this one all-powerful antichrist, right? Or is this maybe multiple antichrists that show up throughout history? The theories abound. But notice, Paul doesn't say anything in this text at all or any of his other texts on this. He doesn't say, that's the guy, right? Pay attention to this guy who looks like this, who comes from this area, who, whose skin color is this, who speaks in this way. He doesn't say this. What he does, his primary concern is for the church and its effectiveness and its faith in Christ and its proclamation of the true orthodox gospel of Christ. And so he, that's the problem that this church is dealing with. And so out of that concern, he offers a solution in the second half of our passage this morning, which is why I asked you to grab your Bibles because I hate I neglected to put it in the bulletin. So verses 13 through 17. Instead of being overly obsessed with the appearance of the man of lawlessness, right? Instead of being overly obsessed with this great falling away, instead of being anxious about it and freaking out over it, he, what Paul does here is realign our, our priorities. And so he tells them here, he says, instead of hyper-focusing on, on these things, instead, just like you were forgetting a few things about the return of Christ, you need to be reminded about a few things about yourselves. And first, here in verse 13, is that God has chosen each and every one of his people. He writes this, But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. Now, chosen here can mean a few things. It can mean, obviously, that God has chosen each and every one of those who are his own, and he chooses them for salvation. But it can also mean he has chosen each and every one of those who are his own for a specific purpose, for a specific work. So jump down to the last two verses, verses 16 and 17. He says this. He says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts during your anxieties over the end times, over the return of Christ, over the man of lawlessness and the rebellion. May he comfort your hearts and establish your hearts in every good work. And word. So to understand what Paul is getting at here, we need some help from some of his other letters because he's really writing in a way that we understand that he knows that the Thessalonians understand what he means without having to write every little thing down. And so we go over to Ephesians chapter 2, and he helps us to understand work a little better there. And he writes this. He says, we are God's workmanship, and we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So there's a term in Greek here in Ephesians 2.10 that we have brought up a few times on Wednesday night, and it's this word, poema, from where we get our word poem. 
But this word in Greek denotes a few things. It helps us understand what he's getting at here in 2 Thessalonians. This means God's work in creation itself. We are God's creation work. And so here in Ephesians, what Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, and it's informing this passage in 2 Thessalonians, is that in the new creation in Christ Jesus, we are all chosen and created for the purpose of good works that God has already prepared before he called us, before the foundation of the world, so that we might work the work that God has given us to do. So here in 2 Thessalonians, in the context of this whole passage of the idea of the return of Christ and the man of lawlessness and the great falling away, the Thessalonians had become depressed and alarmed and anxious, and so many of them had just given up. And Paul is telling them, he's saying, that a believer who is constantly anxious over the revealing of the man of lawlessness and over the revealing of the rebellion against the church, this is a believer who is not being effective at the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. And so he says, you have been chosen. But then he also tells them this, not only have you been chosen, but you have been chosen for good works as the first fruits of salvation. So what this does is this really forces us to remember our context from last week and our lives being drink offerings that are poured out that go along with the first fruits offerings. And so there in 2 Timothy 4, 6, if the implication last week in that text is that our lives are to be drink offerings for the sake of Christ and the gospel and the church and now bringing in the context of 2 Thessalonians and if we have become anxious and obsessed and obstressed over the end times, well, then the question remains, how are we a fruit-producing harvest for Christ and for the gospel and for the church if we are anxious about these things? Because we understand that many have allowed this obsession to not only cripple their faith, but to cripple their work for Christ and for the body of Christ. Next week, just to give you a preview, we see how crippling this becomes because in the other portion of this passage that we're going to look at, or the other portion of this letter we're going to look at, some people had just given up going to work because they believed, well, if Christ has already returned and I'm spiritually perfected, then I don't need to work anymore. What's the point, right? Labor is pointless at this point, so no big deal, right? And so what they are doing is they no longer saw the need to be involved in the work that God had ordained and called them to. And Paul is telling us here, he says, look, you have been chosen for good works as the first fruits to be saved because this is what you are saved for. You are saved for Christ. You are saved for his people. You are saved for good works. We have been saved to be the fruit of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And so the final reminder, the thing he's reminding them of here is that they were chosen to be the first fruits of salvation. He says, to be sanctified so that they would obtain the glory of Christ. Again, he writes, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And then he writes this in verse 14. So to this, he's not specifying any of those particular markers. He's specifying all of them. So to these things you have been called through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Matthew Henry writes here, he says that we cannot divorce salvation and sanctification. Those must go together. He says, we were not chosen by God because we were holy, but we were chosen to be made holy. If we were chosen for salvation as our end, then we must be prepared for it by sanctification as the necessary means to that end. And so part of the purpose of God's choosing us is so that those whom he has chosen may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ through sanctification. And the Greek word here for obtain is possessive in nature, meaning that believers are chosen for salvation so that they may possess the glory of the Son of God. So for the Thessalonians who were questioning the trustworthiness of God's promises and the trustworthiness of God's character, Paul wanted to instill in them a confidence in God and a confidence in God's trustworthiness and a confidence in God's promises by reminding them here that God who loves us not only gave his son, but he also enacted his election, his choosing, long before he set the world in motion. And he has drawn us to his salvation by his spirit through the gospel of Christ. The outcome of which is not only our being found righteous in Christ, but also possessing the glory of Christ. So he's saying here, do not obsess over the end. Don't obsess over suffering. Don't obsess over the Antichrist. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow has its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. He says, rather, know that God is trustworthy and God's promises are good. And we can have confidence in them because you are being sanctified to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he closes here in verse 15 saying pretty much something similar. He says this. He's reminding him. He says, so then, all of these things, you have been called to these things to obtain the glory of Christ Don't be anxious over the end, but instead, so then, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He says, stand up and be firm, right? Stand firmly in the trustworthiness of God. Stand firmly in the fact that his promises are good and that his gospel is good and has saved you and is sanctifying you. But he also says, hold fast to it. And this is similar to his command to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, where he tells Timothy to grab on, to seize his confession that he made in the presence of many witnesses. So here we are to stand firm and seize and grab on to the traditions of the truth of Christ that we have been taught. These traditions are the traditions that are laid out in Scripture and that have been passed on by the apostles, but have also been passed on by us to one another through an orthodox legacy of faith. And so, circling back then to the beginning, as, as we close out and we prepare to come to the table, just keeping 2 Timothy 4 in mind, what's, what's, what's the exhortation for us from this text for today? I think it's the exact same that he gives to the Thessalonians, which is keep the faith and practice it rightly. Seize the faith in Christ that you have been taught and that you have believed and that you have confessed. And remember that you have been called by God for salvation, for sanctification, and for good works. 
so that you may obtain and possess the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can absolutely keep, a sign, keep an eye out for the sign of the times. But that doesn't mean we have to obsess over them. We don't have to stress over them. Because God is faithful, and he will not abandon us. 